Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello and welcome to Undermine Season 4, Episode 17. I'm Tom Marshall, your fish tour guide, as we continue to make some select stops along the Fish 1.0 history journey. Yes, the time known as the 1990s. And we're counting down or up, depending on your view, to the famous fall 1997 fish tour that some people call their best tour ever. In the meantime, you can catch new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Until we get to the predictable and well-documented path of Fall 97, we'll keep tweeting the show dates for our next episode in advance so that you can beat the spoilers and listen for yourself before you hear us talk about it. Or you can just use your imagination. But these jams sound best coming straight from the source. So follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we'll keep you one lesson plan ahead of the class. If you're watching us today on YouTube, you can see for yourself that my co-host for today is fellow Undermine executive producer and New York Times bestselling author, Benji Eisen. Hi, Benji. Hi, Tom. Um, today we are, well, yes, the people uh, watching on YouTube will know that I'm about to lie, but I was going to say we're putting on our our fish issue lab coats. 
Uh, and we're going to sneak into the Game Inch Time Laboratory because <laughs> we're going back to New Year's Eve, 1995, where, curiously, it's 1994 forever. <laughs> actually, you know, Tom, this is uh, actually incredible because there's a question that I really have been waiting to ask you for about 27 years now. <laughs> and I think it's going to have to wait just a little bit longer, maybe during the commercial break or, or right before or after or something. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, we are revisiting Madison Square Garden on 1231, 1995, which is, of course, a date that any longtime fish fan will be quite familiar with already. In fact, I think the number combination 123194 is, I mean, 123195. <laughs> See, um, Trey has me all dripped up on it. Uh, <laughs> it's considered sacred scripture in, in fish lore. So I think we'll get to uh, that in a moment. But before we do anything that we're about to do, before we do anything else, before you let me say one more needless word, <laughs> let me chant the incantation that will unlock everything that follows. And that is, if you've been enjoying this season of Undermine, then please consider subscribing to Cyrus Premium on Apple, where you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and more. Okay, Tom, it is time to page our guest from the waiting room. I will. I will. Uh, and I'm glad that you always have a cheerful way of saying that 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 thing that we have to say. And uh, I don't know if people know how dire it is that we say it. We, Benji and I could be arrested if we don't. So he always is cheerful about it. And uh, we look like we're not under duress, but we are. Um, but anyway, um, Benji, this man... Our guest does need an introduction, even though it's true that our listeners may already be well familiar with Drew Hits from past Undermine seasons. But if you were if you're paying attention, you could tell us all about him on our pop quiz. Um, you know, if there was a pop quiz, um, if there was Drew would ace it because he's an aficionado when it comes to all things fish. And he also brings something unique to the table because Drew's day job includes touring around the world as a working tuba player. In fact, in the fish community, he might be our scene's first tubist. So give a warm, overhanded, undermine welcome to Drew Hits as he comes in from the waiting room. There he is. Hi, Drew. What's up, guys? I should say, I was going to say welcome, but I'm really saying welcome back. But this is the first time on season four of Undermine, but you've been on many seasons and you've contributed. And thank you and welcome back. Well, it's uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Benji and I were just talking a little bit, prepping for, you know, what to ask you and what to talk to you about. And he even remembers what section he was in at MSG for this show. 108. <laughs> and I was in the building that night, too. And all three of us were, and I remember exactly where I was. And I was on the floor uh, for most of it because back then they had floor seats. And as yes. soon as those floor seats left, I also left the floor. I like, I like the rigid containers preventing, you know, a lot of the kind of malarkey that occurs on the floor these days. But anyway, um, Drew, we're going to talk about the show, but uh, please first tell us about your experience. Where were you? Who was with you? What was it like going into the heart of New York City on that New Year's Eve to see Fish play their very first Madison Square Garden New Year's Eve show? 
So I remember exactly where I was because it was uh, by far considering the weight of the show was the best seats that I have ever had. Uh, I was in section two, uh, 15th row dead center. Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, which are just absolutely perfect. So, um, and I was with uh, my friend, uh, Saul uh, Wertheimer, who's a, uh, used to be a big fishnet contributor uh, back in the day. He is now a rabbi. Uh, in uh, living in Queens, uh, but he got those through uh, fish mail order, and uh, I think he offered me the extra. I might have threatened him, um, but uh, either way, I ended up with the extra ticket. And um, I do remember that uh, I stayed with a couple of uh, friends who were uh, students at Manhattan School uh, in a tiny apartment up at uh, 125th and Broadway, um, and I slept on the floor. Um, there wasn't even uh, there wasn't there was barely enough floor in this apartment for me to sleep on. That's how small it was. And uh, interestingly, now one of them is the principal percussionist of the Cleveland Orchestra. He's like one of the most famous percussionists in the world. But um, he was not famous at the time. Yeah, he was just my knucklehead friend uh, living in a very small place who I crashed with. But that was a, a magical evening. Nice, nice. Way up, so far Upper West Side that if your feet had gone any further up, that you'd be out of New York. Yes. Yeah, it's like, well, it's still, you know, you still got Washington Heights. You still got a few, uh, uh, okay. there's still a few neighborhoods up there. In, but, Inwood um, and some other stuff. You're right. Yep, yep. But, uh, but it's, it's pretty up there. Drew, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, for a long time, this show that we're talking about, 1231.95, it was considered by many to be the penultimate night of fish. And it was consistently voted their best show of all time at the time. Uh, before we start in with our mostly agreeable opinions, I think, can you give us some context? Did you catch any of the fall 95 shows that led up to this? Uh, were you paying attention to set lists? I guess at the time, the set list would roll in through Rec Music Fish and uh, you know the early version of Fish Internet. Yes. So I, uh, they played 17 shows in December 95 and I caught 11 of the 17, uh, which was good timing considering, yeah, the output that, uh, that, uh, that, that month. Um, yeah, I actually successfully, um, don't, I now teach college, so don't do this kids, but, uh, I actually successfully moved two of my finals up. Uh, and I don't remember what the reason I gave, but it was not so that I could see my 10th and 11th fish shows of the month. Um, it was something more creative than that. Uh, but, uh, so I was watching all of the set lists, uh, in real time for the six that I didn't catch that month. Uh, in addition to the 11, I did. And I also saw, um, a number, uh, maybe seven in October, including the famous Lincoln, uh, 102195 and, uh, Madison 1024 and, uh, and Halloween as well, uh, which was right down the street since I was at Northwestern. So, so yeah, I saw, I saw quite a bit of that fall tour and was following all of it, uh, rapidly. I, I knew in the moment that something special was happening. We, we, we all did. That's amazing. I wonder how many people have that same experience because I did finals between going to those shows. I went to Hershey and back. I went to UMass and back. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, and, and I think by Binghamton, that was my final final was I, mm -hmm. I did my, my last final and I head out, headed off to Binghamton. <laughs> Neither wow. Benji nor I have amounted to anything though, kids. So don't, uh, don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> finals over fish finals, <laughs> then fish. Remember that that mantra um so uh, all right so you take your seats let's talk about the music lights go down band plays the first set what are your takeaways set one 
So set one, um, first of all, the, the punch you in the eye, you can hear right away. Um, there's, I mean, I adore that song all the time, but there are, um, there are a few openers where you can tell, uh, and it's usually Trey or there's just like a little something, a little extra spicy extra energy. Yeah. I was just listening to eleven twenty eight ninety eight, the wipeout show uh, the mm-hmm. other day. And, uh, the buried alive that opens the second set. You can hear that before the melody even comes in that Trey's doing this very creative, like kind of rhythmic comping. And it's like, and it's extended by, it's only like 20, 25 seconds, but you could tell that night it was like, Oh, and sure enough, <laughs> like, you know, it was like, you know, magic for the next 70 straight minutes. And this punch has some of that as well. Uh, incredibly tight. is one of the greatest rebas that's ever been played uh like bar none um the squirming coil um uh, is uh the outro jam uh might be the uh, might be my favorite outro from a squirming coil that's ever been played and that's because um there's this incredibly intricate uh, interplay between Paige and Trey. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's normal where the band will kind of fade out and then Paige does his thing. Well, the band fades out and I didn't re-listen to this, but I think Trey might either he keeps going after, you know, long after Mike and Fishman stop or he kind of comes back in, but it kind of then bubbles back up, but it's just the two of them. Uh, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's almost like they're both taking the lead at in spots uh, and then Trey eventually backs away. you know, a, uh, a perfectly executed Forbin Mockingbird where there was some tall dude. I wasn't sure who it was who got up there in the middle of that. And, uh, yeah. And like, even that gag with, you know, like with shine was just like, you know, it was like totally surreal. Cause the band, you all like nailed it. I mean, you know, like the singing and everything it was, which made it even funnier. Like fish gags are either like horrifically bad or they're really, really, you know, this one was perfectly executed, which made it more ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, and then a, a strong chalk dust to close, but, but all time versions of, uh, of Reba and of uh, squirming coil. Uh, and this was by far the worst of the three sets. And it was an amazing, uh, opening set. All time you know, version of, um, of shine too, by collective soul. Yes. <laughs> that was you know, easily so the best I've ever seen. That, that hits you both kind of hit upon, uh, drew while you were in the waiting room, I mentioned to Tom that there was a question that I've had for him. Oh uh, no. On waiting for like 27 years. <laughs> oh no, I and hope I can answer that, it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's that during this narration, Trey explains that uh, that you know the, the band spends their downtime off the road in the Game Hinge tabla uh, in the Game Hinge time laboratory so that they can make sure the time keeps moving forward, or else we'll be in 1994 forever. 
but it was already the last few moments of 1995. So, Tom, do you think Trey forgot the year? <laughs> or was he referencing the song itself, Shine, was from 1994. So was he referencing that, perhaps? I yeah. thought he lost track of time. No, 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 no. I, I think it's what you said. I think it was like it, he was just sort of like saying an example. Like, imagine if we got stuck in 94 when this song was the obnoxious song on the radio. You know, but you're right. Maybe we should have found one from 95 just to 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 make more sense. But I, I do think that um, there was I think this song was kind of chosen on the bus and the band and it, like everyone agreed that it's like the one that's in your head that everyone will know that's like been ridiculously overplayed. <laughs> My goodness. Yes. Yeah, it was everywhere. <laughs> and uh, you can't help but like, you know, just like Oasis or uh, Third Eye Blind, you can't help but. To like the song right it's actually it's pretty catchy but no one is allowed to admit that they like it which is why why it made it better but um all right back to real time uh benji i'm glad i was able to answer that i think um <laughs> that night after the first set the band audience chess match so the saga comes to a close suspiciously with a one-to-one draw um <laughs> drew can you talk us through the second set highlight reel Absolutely. I was very happy when it ended up 1-1 because I was uh, heavily uh, yeah, vested and I didn't go and actually play, but I was, you know, because I had seen, I, I think, 18 shows that tour. So I had seen a lot of moves and I'm trying to think of where it was. There was one move in October that was so bad for uh, the audience that the guy got booed and the band, the band made him do it over again because it was like sacrificing our queen for no reason because he was just... On uh, on a little too much of something he shouldn't have been on making our chess move. But anyway, um, <laughs> so the uh, uh, I easily the greatest round uh, ever played uh, a perfectly executed uh, lizards. Um, the runaway gym uh, is really, uh, really incredible. Um, yeah. It's melodic. It's driving. It's, um, you know, and then there's kind of like the the, the December 95 uh, permafunk, um, which then like, you know, that, that kicks in before it builds. Uh, and then, um, you know, Strange Design, Hello, My Baby was kind of like an interesting, like, you know, two down tunes in a row. And then probably the most confused I've ever been as a fish nerd during a set was when they started when they dropped into Mike's song. And I'm like, you know, looking at my watch and I'm like, there is not time to like do. And I, I was like, are they just going to like just jam a Mike's hydrogen weakapog that's going to be like, you know, 13 total minutes here. You know, that just didn't seem like it was really what was what was going to happen. And then sure enough, uh, one of the greatest, uh, some people call it the greatest Mike song ever played. It's in the conversation. Um, but even how they, uh, I won't jump into the third set yet, but even how they constructed this, where there was like this Mike song within the digital delay loop jam, which was just Trey with the rest of them leaving as if it was a coil encore, which they did in the middle of the first set, which is unusual placement for this time of, you know, this point in their history. And then they like threw like a, you know, a set break in the middle of a Mike's groove, um, which was just, you know, so even the set list uh, construction was uh, was a little off kilter uh, in a really creative way. But that Mike song, that Mike song is just uh, it's phenomenal. Oh, my goodness. It's phenomenal. The first jam is uh, is short, but uh, incredibly, uh, you know, it's it sounds like at this point, this band, there's so many of their jams sounded like completely planned, written out and rehearsed for months. Huh. Uh, and yet 
at the same time spontaneous, if that makes any sense. I mean, it was just polished. They were finishing each other's sentences um, at a level that I had never seen before. Uh, and I saw some pretty amazing fish in 93 and 94. Um, and this Mike song, and then the second jam, they kick in and then, uh, almost instantly it completely just, it, it, it comes together as this completely different groove and vibe almost instantly, uh, again, as if it was something that had been pre-played, it was almost like they went into a different song and it was still Mike's song within the structure. Um, but they were, they were just, uh, yeah, like I just said, finishing each other's sentences, just really, uh, operating at a level where, it had to be a whole lot of fun being one of those four musicians uh, getting on stage, uh, you know, at that point of, of that tour. reading that night and it, what blew my mind was that they're not just reading one other person's mind they're reading each other's mind like the, the the group mind as yeah. it were you know and now yeah. since fish of course right now currently isn't on the road i think that means that trey mike page and fish are all back in the time and back in the game hinge time laboratory <laughs> uh, they're making sure that time moves forward and it does because it's already time for us to cut to a short commercial break but we'll be right back And we are back. Fishman may or may not have gotten a haircut during that break. <laughs> Speaking of, Drew, do you remember watching Fishman get a haircut on stage during set break? For, for those of us who weren't there, do you want to explain? It was uh, it was a very fish moment. Yeah, it <laughs> happened right in front of me where it was like, what the hell is like is that Fishman on stage? Like, why is he, you know, and then he's like, and then he sat and then he got a haircut. Yeah, because because I yeah, and it, and it was this is a true sign of, uh, of fish and their creativity and Fishman in particular, where it was kind of like, this is crazy. What is it? And it's like, of course, Fishman is sitting on stage at Madison square garden with the lights up, getting a haircut. Cause why wouldn't he, you know, I was like, thinking like, he's like, uh, you know, it's like an excuse that he had to go and tell his mom something like, uh, you went to New York and didn't get a haircut. So <laughs> he made sure that he got a haircut in New York. That was a little surreal. I, I think I looked up and I just looked at my at the girl I was with at the time and I said I I think he lost the bet, <laughs> but okay so so the second set ends with with mites which in itself as you alluded to earlier Drew it was completely unheard of at the time you know I I, I know that uh, they did the mites Wikipod in 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 Boston for New Year's Eve in '92 where they had old things sign in the middle but mm -hmm. that you know wasn't ending the set and and then coming back so we we knew. What that meant, we knew that Wikipod would be the New Year's the New Year's song. Um, but give us give us the third set takeaway because obviously Wikipod uh, must must lead in that race. Yeah, you know the the first one. This is real uh, real nerdy uh, musically, but the the All Lang Syne 
uh, is uh, actually something that I have played for uh, classical students of mine, uh, specifically Trey's, um, his embellishment of that melody mm. um, is uh, is very like Paul McCartney-esque, which uh, for me is like an enormous compliment where you listen to Paul McCartney sing Hey Jude, and he does not add a single extra note to that melody until it's like maybe the third time through. And then he adds like, one extra note, you know, or, or maybe it's two extra notes and he just, he sticks. And then, so when he actually does embellish a lot, you, you wait for it. And like the payoff, whereas I, I once saw a national anthem at a wizards game here in DC and the person sang so many notes on, Oh, say they had to breathe after the word say, which that is a bad sign. So this is like the exact opposite of that, which uh, it's just like, it's perfection um, with like all the new year's, um, you know, craziness going on. Uh, and then that drops into uh, what is by far my favorite week of pog of all time. Um, I think that that might be the gem that I've listened to the most times of any fish jam ever played. Whoa, wow. uh, I've listened to it hundreds of times uh, and I love the Mike song, but I've listened to the week of pog for whatever reason, like two times as many times as the mics. If I don't have time for the whole thing. Um, yeah. The, the week of pog is just uh, it's, it's really, really, it, it's incredible. Um, there's uh, uh, it's, it's driving, it's festive, it's melodic. Uh, there's a lot of rhythmic interplay. Um, there's uh, there's one one uh, quarter note triplet lick that Trey sets up and um, and and he and he kind of he plays a, a a lick and then waits and then plays the lick and then waits and then plays it uh, extends it and both Fishman and Mike join him like to a perfect <laughs> release and it was you know which made me fist pump because I'm a weirdo. Just really, the this is fish at their absolute best. Uh, any musicians at their absolute best, but this is a perfect example of it. Is that all four of them during this week of Pog, during this entire month of December '95, they all came to every tune with uh, very, very strong opinions about the direction of jam wanted to where they wanted to take things, but simultaneously are willing and uh, and able at any moment to take information from any of the other three and change their own course. And that's when it's the most exciting time uh, to, uh, I'm imagining if you're writing songs with people, it's the same way, where if you're writing a song with somebody who has strong ideas that they're willing to completely, you know, like go the other way with when you have a strong idea that influences them or whatever. It's the same thing with either improv or composed music. And Fish was just like reeking of exclamation points, but also of, you know, wanting to be able to, uh, you know, of playing off of one another. It was like four leaders on stage, but in an organic 
way. Um, and lots, then lots of, uh, yes. And right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The old improv uh, trick. That's exactly right. Tom. Yes. And, um, see, I just, yes. Anded your yes. And that was really <laughs> meta right there. Uh, and then, uh, sea and sand was, uh, was the first time that that had been played since, uh, since Halloween. And that was like, you know, they turned Madison square garden. It reminded me of Trey's, uh, I'm one uh, at, um, you know, on, on Halloween, which was just solo with him and acoustic. We're like, Paige, it's not easy to turn an arena like that into what felt like a coffee house for a few minutes, you know, but it was very intimate. Uh, and then that was followed by one of the best you enjoy myself's ever played, which like, these are like, these are not even things I throw around either. Right. Like my top 10 list of yems is not 35 yems long. Uh, and my top five list of week of is not 20 week of <laughs> the fall 95 but especially like halloween 95 uh this one uh, and of course albany uh with the silent jam which i was uh, lucky enough to be at as well um just like just inspired just really 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 inspired and then frankenstein johnny be good to close was just like you know just frantic rock and roll just you know it's like basically just mic drop and then you know storm off stage and i'm guessing high five and hug each other so yeah that was uh it was it was just a remarkable night that holds up in every possible way uh on tape and and hearing you talk about uh your breakdowns per set uh, you know i'm trying to like i'm trying to come away with with the answer and i i think you've either over answered or haven't quite answered like what is it that makes the show so legendary was it was it one set in particular or or was it that everyone in the room remembered the energy of being in new york city on new year's eve or was it one of those top to bottom just incredible shows you just need to take the whole thing in to appreciate the fullness of it yeah it's a good question i mean i would say that the first new year's at madison square garden certainly played into the vibe in the moment and um and the crowd was um was really great i've never been like with a bad fish crowd but uh but there are some where uh and anyone who's performed a lot has experienced this where there are some nights and you still give it just as much for any crowd doesn't matter what but there are some crowds that make it unbelievably easy to collect a check that night because it's just <laughs> like the energy is just like screaming at you from them mm. uh, and this was one of those um, but I would say it's not only the flow of the whole thing and also all the tunes that didn't make the list, like the maze is mm. unbelievably well performed. The sloth is perfectly executed. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the axilla is very tight. Um, you know, it's like all of it is really, really, but, I, but I think that it's like 
all-time versions of Reba, Drowned, Runaway Jim, Mike Song, Weeka Pog, You Enjoy Myself. I mean, it's like six <laughs> tunes that are all, uh, if you had three of those and then the other three were just like, just good 95 yeah. versions, this would still be revered as one of the best shows ever. But that's like six massive jam vehicles that are all all-time versions, which you add that all up and it's, uh, you know, considered one of the greatest of all time with mm -hmm. reason. There are summer shows that that make greatest, you know, that make best of lists based off of one one version of one song, mm -hmm. you know. And as you said, this is completely stacked. Now, you know, I I was once on board. I'm not. It's, it's hard for me to to name. You know, when people say, "What's your favorite show?" It's like I I break down subcategories. What's my favorite show that I was at versus what's my favorite show versus you know all these all these things. Um, at the time, I definitely was on board with putting this on a, a, a top five. Uh, maybe not the top, only because there was such uh, stiff competition leading up to it with the the five, six, seven weeks, you know, that led up in the November and December of 95. And then also what I think we need to keep in mind is that, you know, the 220-93 Roxy show, 622-94 Columbus, these were all recent shows at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yet this this definitely topped it. But now that we have all these years and hundreds and hundreds of shows later, totally different chapters of fish. Do you think that New Year's Eve 95 is still the high watermark? Um, I always off the top uh, give Big Cypress uh, an NR for not rated or not rateable just because that was um, just such a colossal. And I think right. that you could absolutely articulate on musical grounds only why you would favor this show over Big Cypress. I'm not making that argument, but Big Cypress is just like, is its own thing. And, you know, they built a city in the Everglades and then, you know, played for seven and a half straight hours. Um, so <laughs> not considering Big Cypress, uh, I, I think that this is one of those where, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's similar to the, you know, to the Cornell Dead show um, where there are, uh, you know, some hipsters who like to say that like Buffalo is better, um, you know, which like Buffalo is an amazing dead show. Um, but like when you actually just look at you ignore all the hype and then you just look at the all time versions of Dancing in the Streets and of like the of the, you know, the, the walk off do and like and you just add it all up and you go like, wait a minute, sometimes the hype is is justified uh, when you just kind of look at it on paper. And I think that this is the perfect example uh, of that. Uh, and, and you're right, there are, and, but it also depends on what you're looking for in a show. And then there's a lot of nuance, you know, like nobody, um, you know, the Albany 12,995, um, the first set of Albany was uh, not one of the stronger sets in December 95. And it wasn't bad, but like, again, there's not 30 yams in my top 10. So like that first set of Albany is in like the bottom 50% easily of sets in December 95. Well, no one was, nobody was walking out of Albany going, Going, yeah, the first set wasn't that strong. I mean, the yam was so un. I'm getting goosebumps literally right <laughs> now. I mean, you know, thinking about it, it was so just transcendental that all anybody talked about leaving was the you enjoy myself. I mean, there were people high fiving, and it had been like 40 minutes since that thing had ended, and people were high fiving, yelling about the you enjoy myself.
it's all kind of, you know, it's like the tent pole jam and a show versus, but this has got like seven tent poles and it has, you know, there's like seven jams you could build the show around, but also all of the type one stuff is like, is perfectly executed. And then the, you know, and even the gag was great. I mean, you know, like the, you know, with the fishman and a typer, I mean, you know, it's like, it was all just, um, yeah, I, I, it had, I thought that it had absolutely everything and it was tight while also the band was obviously creatively loose. Uh, and I could see, uh, it's truly remarkable in retrospect that the band was so loose. And so now they got the first show ever, you know, uh, MSG 94, 1230, 94, which I was at as well, which was a good show, but like that was nothing compared to the Bowie the night before in Providence, which was one of my all time favorite moments. But like, they, you know, they felt the weight of MSG and they delivered. So like some really, really good stuff. But like the first ever New Year's, like right down the street from where the ball drops, like the center of the universe. Yeah. And they were, I mean, talk <clears throat> about a, a justifiably being nervous potentially. And they were just, they walked on stage just like those, just like the four dudes who look like us. Uh, you know, I know Tom basically you are one of the dudes, but you know what I mean, right? You know, it's just like, <laughs> they it's just the room. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years older than me at the time, but they look just like I would like, you know, <laughs> no thought in what they were wearing. They just walked out and then they just like punched everybody in the nose and the smiled in, and in, in the eye. And I thank you, Tom. That was, that was right there waiting for me and I missed it. So, yeah. So I, I think it holds up, um, uh, to, yeah. to any scrutiny personally. Nice. Well, um, as you know, Drew, so we're counting our way. Basically, our destination is fall 97, and mm -hmm. we had to hit this show. Um, we knew that we were going to do 25 shows leading up to fall 97. Um, this one was one that even I, who don't go back and listen to a lot of shows, uh, knew had to be, uh, you know, on our program this season. Um, it's a legendary show, but it's also a must stop waypoint in a way on our way to fall 97. Um, and so now that destination is just two years away from this point. How does fish in 97 evolve from fish at this point? Boy, that's a, that's a hard one to answer quickly. Um, but, um, the you know the band just never stopped never stops growing still but especially then it was like every single tour sounded in some way different uh, significantly than it had previously even like summer this isn't what you asked but summer 95 was like was like this uh it sounded like the the love child of fall 94 which got really dark and really which i absolutely adore uh and then like fall 95 especially like from you know like mid-october on that we kind of know as fall 95 in all caps it was like you know kind of it sounds like those two got together and you know and then made that and sure enough so it's like you and can see out. And yes, it, out. <laughs> yes it's just like there's a through line right through uh you know, all of those things. And, uh, 96, there was some really, there were some really special moments in 96. Um, however, uh, it did feel like things didn't quite click, uh, at any point over an extended period of time, like they did in December 95. Um, but that's because like when you take all, all growth in music and just in life comes from when you don't quite know when something is going to work out or not. Right. Where you like you decide to start Osiris Media. And it's like if there was just like if there was like a just a, a pamphlet to tell you, you do this, then this, then this, then this, then this, then you know it succeeds. Then 
thousands of people would have done it before you and nobody would have heard of it. It would have lasted a month, right? So you don't know if it's going to be a huge flop, a huge success somewhere in the middle. And it's the same thing musically. Um, and now I want to be clear. I'm not calling 96 fish like a flop. I mean, at all. I mean, there's some like really, I mean, the Clifford ball again, talk about stepping up like that festival that they, you know, like they're rewriting like the, you know, the rock industry, like in <laughs> real time, they're learning how to fly the plane while it's in the air. And some of the two that down with disease, like the, I mean, just, uh, you know, the brother, when they've got Ben and Jerry on stage and then they just like destroy that song. I mean, that's like, but, but 96 felt a little bit disjointed, whereas everything from mid October on, um, you know, like really felt like it was clicking. Um, and then 97, uh, things like kind of started to morph again, uh, in a really, really special way. And, um, there are a lot of parallels musically between 95 and 97, uh, which I don't have time to like get into deeply, but there's also a lot of differences, you know, they're, they're both patient, but patient in different ways. Uh, and I think that the band got even more patient, uh, in 97, um, but I also, that's not a slight to 95. I think part of the magic of 95 is, uh, in, in some spots was a lack of patience. Um, and the Albany, yeah, I mean, there's like, uh, you know, you could obviously point to like dozens of examples to make what I just said, uh, you know, out of context seem ridiculous, but there was, they were kind of like always looking for where that thing was going. And in 97, I think, um, I think that they sometimes knew where things were going. They just didn't know how they were getting there. And they were very comfortable with that and comfortable with letting it get there. However, it was going to get there sometimes with nuance and sometimes not. Um, but these are, you know, it's all magical time, uh, in, uh, in fish history. And I'm very happy that I was just old enough to be able to do it and not old enough to have any kind of real responsibilities of any kind at all. So mom and dad, thank you for having me in 1975. I can never repay you. <laughs> Drew, <laughs> Drew, I know that we are about to run out of time. So just very quickly here, let me ask you a question that you could probably spend three hours answering. Sure. <laughs> um, oh, good. A nice but, fast one. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. But, but in a nutshell, you know, we just talked, we just jumped ahead to 97 because obviously that's what this season of undermine is doing. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like since we have been going chronologically, let's just turn it around for a second and look back. New Year's Eve gigs often to me are the culmination of the year. And as you said, you know, Fish, especially during this period, every tour, they were a remarkably different band. They had, you know, every tour had this character, you know, this, this hallmark fingerprint to it. Mm -hmm. So for New Year's Eve 95, you know, can you just quickly talk about like how it might have been the punctuation mark on you know, I, I wasn't going to say the, the two years from 90, New Year's 93 to 95. But let's just talk about 95. How was the New Year show kind of a culmination of everything they had been working towards at that point? So the summer 95 was very, uh, very exploratory. Um, and uh, and I that might be my favorite tour ever. Um, uh, you know, they they went like really deep and they had absolutely no idea where they were going on those jams. Uh, I was lucky enough to be at, at Mud Island for that legendary tweezer. Um, and uh, and I was pissed when they ripcorded it after 51 minutes. So yeah, I wanted that thing to go on for another half an hour. Um, but that style of jamming 
Um, you know, uh, I would have been happy if they had never deviated from that ever. If they had been doing that for the last 27 years, I would be leaving every show, you know, like doing fist pumps and high fiving. But that's not fish. You know, it's like they're constantly morphing. And so the the fall, they um, they they then kind of reined it in, uh, although I doubt that they and maybe they did, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess that they called it that or that they, that they thought of that as the mission. Um, but they kind of reined it in a little bit more and there was a lot less like mixed meter, you know, a lot of those jams, uh, there's like, you know, the, the, uh, SPAC 95, um, like the, you know, the, the free, uh, that down with disease free, like that free is just like, it's like, is amazing. And all of a sudden it goes into this like demented waltz, like in three. I mean, it's just like that kind of stuff didn't happen in fall 95 or actually much in many periods since, but they kind of started to rein it in. And then by the end of that tour, um, and there's always a correlation in fish history between long tours and the end of them really finishing each other's sentences. And those shows started, you know, at the end of September, um, not the strongest start to a tour to say the least, but like the end of September out in California. And then with the exception of a one week break, they went all the way through December 17th, uh, you know, at Lake Placid. Um, but they, they kind of perfected that new style. And that's the thing when every tour is different, the four of them are each different. And then the, the com combined conversation is different. Um, that when they get that long to really figure out the, the real nuance in the conversation that they're having, uh, I think that's what we got towards the end. And then uh, if New Year's, I'll close with this. If New Year's 95 had just ended up being a solid show uh, and not legendary, uh, I still think that December 95 would be in the top, like, you know, three months conversation that they've ever played. Uh, and if the New Year's run had just been like the tweezer from the 28th and the the bathtub gin, real me bathtub gin, which lifted me off of the floor uh, when they, you know, when they segued into that. Um, and then like the 30th and 31st were fine. It still would have been an amazing New Year's. But the fact that they put this much of an exclamation point uh, musically, artistically, performance art wise, even though with the gag and uh, and with Tom's with Shine, I mean, like it's just like the whole even the gags were perfectly executed. I mean, it was just one of those nights where, uh, you know, Michael Jordan used to talk about at the end of basketball games that like things would slow down. Right. When he could kind of just like he could see where teammates were headed or where defenders were going to be at the end of And it just felt like fish was in this moment. And I have experienced that whole flow state on stage where everything just goes slower and it just feels like you can just, you can just make the art and that everything else gets pushed away, uh, including even the operating of the instrument. Uh, but when all four people on stage are experiencing that at one time, uh, then that's when, uh, if you're in the building, uh, you'll be telling your kids about it and talking about it on a podcast, however many years later. That's when a show like this happens. And exactly. And and Drew, it, 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 we really do have to sound the end of time horn here or the end of time tuba in this case. <laughs> but um, uh, it's such a delight to hear. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, at Osiris, we found a bunch of people like you with certain levels of knowledge, but your um, effortless way of describing it and your impeccable memory, but also coupled with uh, your musical um ability to analyze uh, makes you like one of our best guests uh, by far when we're talking at this level of detail. And thank you very much for coming on. 
Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and thank you for joining us. And as always, also to my uh, co-host, Benji Eisen, and our fellow executive producers, RJB and Matt Dwyer. And thank you to everyone out there in podcast land for joining us. And if you like us, come back for more and remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. And we'll see you in a few days, which in our world will mean a new year, 1996. And it's not the same as you remember it. We promise you. Even though, yes, Bob Dole was the Republican presidential candidate, it was a strange year. But if you really want to go back with us, queue up August 16th and 17th, 1996. What is that date, Benji? What are those dates? Well, that is when we become beacons of light in a world of slight. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. If, I, if I could super quickly step on the script and if I could just plug the Mockingbird Foundation, uh, which I'm on the board of directors of. Um, yeah, uh, I just a uh, heartfelt thank you to everybody in the fish community who has donated money or time or whatever. Uh, we recently passed two million dollars uh, handed out to schools around the country. And none of that is possible without all of you. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you very much. A heartfelt thank you from the fish community back to the Mockingbird because you guys are just doing such a wonderful thing for our community. Amen. There it is. Thank we'll you. End there. Thank you, guys. Osiris. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.